This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors. So we're going to keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Welcome back. Today we have Tim Sorens with us. He is a pastor and co-founding director of the Parish Collective and has spent time noticing the work of God in urban and suburban neighborhoods and even rural villages. He's written several books for believers on how to be the church in their neighborhoods, one called The New Parish, and the one that we're going to focus on today is called Everywhere You Look. So welcome, Tim. We are thrilled to have you on today. I am really thrilled to be with both of you. Awesome. Thank you for being with us. So before we get into the book, you've started this organization called the Parish Collective, which connects people to be the church in their neighborhood. So I'm curious, what does it mean for us to be the church in our neighborhoods? It's maybe a different way of hearing that. And also, what is a parish as well? You probably get this question a lot. So I'll actually start with the second question because that can help lead into the first. How we define the parish is a geographic area that is large enough to live a lot of your life, live, work, play, theoretically, but small enough to be known as a character in the story of that place. So for a lot of folks listening, if they're in a larger city, that's going to be way too big. And if they're in a subdivision that's just housing and there's no schools, there's no parks, there's no anything else, that might be too small. Usually in cities, parishes are pretty synonymous with neighborhoods. But I really appreciate the introduction there because a lot of times suburban areas, the whole suburb might be more or less thought of as a parish. And same in rural communities, it might be 50, 60, 70 square miles with a center, and that might be essentially equivalent to a parish. The first question of how do we be the church in the neighborhood? Well, what a wonderful question. I think there are a thousand ways to do that, but the big emphasis there is on be as opposed to go. So what we're always wrestling with is how might we connect people to be the living, breathing, public, relational, local fabric of care in their neighborhoods that worships on Sundays, and maybe even in different places, but specifically, how can they and how can their neighbors begin to, over time, begin to have an imagination for, yeah, these people, these Christians here in the neighborhood, they are the church. They're seeking to listen and discern the hopes and dreams of God. They're being formed into the image of Jesus. They've got some relationships or series of relationships. Essentially, it's in the 24-7 life of our actual lives. How can we actually be the church? That's the question that's been animating us for many years now. And you say right on your website, the future of the church is at stake. So what do you mean by that? Well, I think in many ways, the future of the church is at stake. Now, clearly, Jesus is going to build the church, and he's going to do that with or without us. So I don't mean existentially. I do mean the future of how people experience the church, in particular neighbors, actually is very much, I think, at stake. There is a whole veritable industry, and they're important, books and podcasts and studies that basically are all saying the same thing, and that is the church is in significant decline. Some would say we are in the largest religious transition in the history of this country, and that's largely true. And most of the forecasts are pretty dire. They're pretty negative. They're pretty grim. However, almost all of those studies have to do with what's going on on Sunday morning. 
And that needs to be paid attention to. A big question that we're asking is, where is the church on Tuesday afternoon, on Wednesday morning, on Friday night? And if you look there, if you zoom down into the neighborhood level or the parish level, you start to get pretty interesting and arguably different answers. While the numerical growth of the church would be hard to name, the qualitative growth, I'd say, of the church is really interesting. Friends, I've been in probably five, nearly 600 neighborhoods in the last decade, and there's never been a time where I haven't asked what God is up to amongst other Christians and believers and not been inspired by what they were doing to care for one another, to care for other people, to engage in systems. So I would say largely there is this burgeoning movement that I think is off the radar from a lot of the larger media outlets that I'm hoping we have to pay more and more attention to because I think the future there is actually quite bright. When you mentioned that in your book, you were talking about there is a new movement that God is stirring up. And I think we resonated with that because we felt that as we've made neighboring our full-time focus and have tried to love our neighbors and rally people in our neighborhood to love each other and build community and show and share the love of God and helped others do that as well. There is an excitement, I think, that's building with that. When we first changed to do this about five or six years ago, I was like, neighboring, what's that? And we're like, we don't know. We're just going to figure it out. But since then, there's this interest that's growing. And you said that being a part of this new movement or seeing it is going to require some new imagination. What do you mean by that? What do we have to imagine in new ways in order to be a part of what God is doing on this parish level? Well, the first and maybe most important shift that at least I've seen and have witnessed and experienced quite a bit in a lot of different places, and certainly in my own life, is that when we're talking about the church, or if we have conversations with pastors or clergy, or sometimes even lay leaders, it's totally normal and understandable to primarily ask church questions. So those are things like, how do we grow our church? Or how do we be more relevant? Or how do we get young people back to the church? Or what do we do with this building? Or what color should the carpet be? These kinds of questions. Those are totally fair. And in some ways, many of us have been groomed to organize our entire lives around those questions. But here is the tricky thing. It's very, very difficult to continually ask church questions and get anything other than church answers And that's actually a problem if we believe that God is at work, maybe even out ahead of us. And that should be our primary question. So the big first shift or imagination turn that we often invite people into is try not to first ask the church or even ministry question, how do we grow a ministry? The first question is, what is God up to? And how do I join in that? So rather than asking the ministry question, you're asking the God question which is fundamentally, you could say, a question of mission and even theology. What is actually God doing? And even though I'll say I grew up in a wonderful Christian home, I have a master's of divinity that I'm still paying off. (laughs) Most of us weren't trained to ask that question as very primal. What is God up to? And what are the hopes and dreams of God? And what do they look like in my everyday life? And how do I join in? What is the Spirit doing ahead of us, amongst us? Those are, I think, really, really important questions that any of us can ask. And when we ask them, the answers usually demand our lives, our presence. Maybe not for the rest of our lives, but some experimentation, some invitations, some shifts in habits, certainly some shifts in attention. And I think that that is maybe the second big question for how do we seek new imagination? Well, let's think about where we place our attention 
And if we believe that God is at work, how do we put more and more of our attention as to what we imagine God might be up to? And I think, and from my experience, that leads us on, sounds like this is true for the two of you as well, all kinds of new adventures. I'm curious from your experiences being in all of these diverse neighborhoods, when you say God is up to a movement, the spirit is stirring in neighborhoods all over. What are some of those trends you're seeing? What are some of the works of the spirit or works of God in this neighboring movement that you're getting to observe? So many things. We love the language of the dreams of God, but scripturally, you could look at shalom, both in the Old and New Testaments, which is the thing that Jesus was always talking about, the kingdom of God come near. So what does that look like? Well, in some ways, sometimes it looks like restored relationships, marriages, friendships. Sometimes it looks like brand new social ventures. Sometimes it looks like starting new businesses or nonprofits. Sometimes it looks like a series of potluck dinners. Sometimes it looks like two people who really care a lot about their faith beginning to walk and pray in their neighborhoods with some rhythm. It certainly looks like listening for and confronting historic injustices that are deeply against God's heart. It has to do with being a whole lot more curious and humble and trusting that God actually is at work. So it can have as many, you could say, permutations as there are places and people. What they hold in common is that God is renewing and restoring every square inch of creation. That's what God is doing through Christ. So our task is to join that work. Our task, I would argue, is not to bring that or manufacture it or have some long-levered technique to make it happen. It's actually something God is doing with or without us. So we get to join that work actually as a gift. It's grace. It's not actually on us. It's actually on God. That's by faith. But many of us listening to this have felt that reality over and over again. It's certainly not perfect, and we still very much live in a broken world. But most people, if they're listening to this, can think even maybe in the last month or two of small or even large stories of renewal and restoration and redemption in their actual lives. And I would argue that's the work of God. So good to be reminded of that, because I think so many people live in neighborhoods that are maybe more isolated and cut off and independent. It's a cultural trend to just leave your neighbors alone. It's definition of a good neighbor. Take your trash out and don't disrupt anybody. And so I think for some people, it can be hard if you think, okay, what is God doing? You look out your neighborhood and you're like, I don't see him doing anything. That's when you have to remind yourself that we're a part of this story where God is making all things new and he is at work behind the scenes and noticing those small things that he's doing and begin to jump in with those and respond to that invitation, I think is really important to engage our imaginations in that way too. 100%, Chris. I think that it's pretty rare to hear about inspiring stories of life or ministry, mission, discipleship, worship, etc., that don't fundamentally begin with listening. And I feel like that's a major invitation for all of us, certainly everyone listening, that the most profound ways to be a neighbor and to be, I would argue, a Christian is continually seeking to listen. And that's listening to God, maybe first and foremost, but also listening to our neighbors, listening to ourselves, listening to our families, listening to the stories even of the places where we are. Everywhere we are, there's a history to that place. Even if it's a brand new subdivision that's six months old, the land still has a story there. 
And the more that we pay attention to that, the more clues we might have as to some of what God is longing to see happen there. So what does it look like to do this, practically speaking, to listen for God's leading? You talk a lot in your book about dependence, and you stress the importance of prayer and not trying to control the outcomes, because really we're powerless to make that transformation that we want to see. So what does it look like to have that listening posture, both for God and towards our neighbors? Well, I'm glad you bring this up, this idea of dependence and how do we listen, because I can't be the only person on the planet that has gotten in trouble by one of two ways. And this is mentioned a bit in the book, Everywhere You Look. If fundamentally we begin with listening and we don't keep listening and we don't experiment, which we can talk about more later, some ideas around that. But if fundamentally we're not really attuned with and truly dependent on the Holy Spirit, then, and this is a story that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, typically what happens is we try to do something, usually with good intentions. And if it works, what's the human emotion that happens when you do something and you work? Perhaps if you're like me, a little bit puffed up with pride, you're like, huh, this is fantastic. Let's grow this. Let's scale this. Let's blog about this. Let's tweet about this. This is fantastic. That's pretty common. And some of your listeners probably have heard the proverb that what goes before the fall is pride. So if it's all in our own power, and this happens constantly, we can get puffed up with pride. And again, we slip into that very slippery slope to think that we are the agents of change as opposed to God. Now, there's a reverse of this too. And maybe you all have even experienced this where something was really beautiful and without ever meaning to began to think that this was more and more in our agency and that we perhaps had a little bit more power than we thought. And we kept experimenting or kept doing this fantastic ministry or we made the shift and then we fell on our face and were completely embarrassed. Well, then what is the human emotion when you fall on your face? Shame. And usually the human reaction to shame is to isolate or to give up. We're like, okay, I tried that. That can't be. Somewhere between shame and pride, I'd say, is faithful presence. And that is what is required of each of us all the time to always be listening and discerning. God, what are you asking of me today in this moment, in this context? So there's practical examples for how people can get after that. And I would argue that eventually you can't do that on your own. But I think that is where it begins. And it is why I think there's no magic formula or silver bullet for any of this. But the task, I'd say, the goal is faithful presence. I love that reminder. And I was so encouraged reading that in your book. We've spent some time in the Beatitudes for the last couple of years thinking about being neighbors who would seek to embody these postures of being poor in spirit and meek and merciful. What would happen in our neighborhoods if we were to love our neighbors and demonstrate the way of Jesus in that way? And I just kept thinking about the first beatitude as I was reading your book, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and how central that was to your message and your focus is this place of dependence on God and His Spirit and His leading. So I really appreciated that. And even just hearing you say now, okay, it's going to be a cycle. There might be moments of pride, and then there'll be moments of shame, but don't give up come back to that place of faithful presence. I really appreciate that. One of my favorite, it's a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson, it's from the Beatitudes where he says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Oh yeah. Because when there's less of you, there's more of God and his reign. And yeah, that is part of why I think that the word repentance generally gets a bad rap. 
oftentimes we equate repentance with shame itself. And that's actually not what repentance is. Repentance, even in the Greek, is just a turning around. It's actually good news that we can repent, that it's not over, that God is not done with us as individuals, as families, as neighborhoods. But we do need to turn around. Oftentimes it's a 180. That's what it equates to in the Greek. And if we've fallen on our face with shame, we need to turn around. And if we are puffed up with pride, we need to turn around. And when we do, we're going to find God. His grace is there to meet us, give us this opportunity to try again, second chance, re-engage, which is really beautiful. I feel like in your book, you're calling us to shifts in our thinking in order to participate in what God's doing in the neighborhood. And one of them that I think is really interesting and had me thinking more is the difference between the question, what church is versus what church is for. Could you unpack the difference between those and why it's important to understand what the church is for as we think about engaging in our neighborhoods? Absolutely. This question in some ways is at the heart of the book because I have, and a whole bunch of my friends and colleagues, I feel like have effectively given our vocational lives for the church. And right now, I don't think that it's too scandalous to say that the practical imagination, both of what the church is and certainly what it's for, is up for grabs. What I mean by that is, I don't feel like there's consensus across lots of neighborhoods, denominations, churches, etc., that we would all just say, the church is for X. There's lots of answers, but because there are so many answers, both for ourselves and certainly for our neighbors, there's just a big question mark. Think about that as almost like a sector, if you will. If the whole field of medicine was just up for grabs, we didn't know what it was for anymore, you'd have a pretty unruly hospital. Well, we've got a pretty unruly church, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There's so many things. And arguably, this is something that's happening within, honestly, lots of institutions, because any institution, any sector, any organization that fundamentally exists for itself is on the path of decline and irrelevance and perhaps death. You could say this has been baked into creation. The fancy theological word for this is kenosis. As Jesus said, we find ourselves by giving ourselves away. This is true as individuals, but it's also true for us as churches. So it's literally how we discover who we are, is in the relationship of giving ourselves away in ways that are uniquely us. So I'm much more interested in this second question of what is this church for? And in the book, I borrow from a writer named Simon Sinek, who some people have perhaps either read or watched his viral TED talk called Start With Why. And in that TED talk and his subsequent book, he basically says, look, people aren't that interested in what you do. They're interested in why you do it. And when I initially saw the TED talk, I was just eating lunch and I just about spit up my food because I was like, oh, that's it. That's a big part of it for the church because we're always talking about what we do, our programs and our buildings and whatever else. And honestly, most of our neighbors don't care that much about what we do. They care about why we do what we do. And maybe they don't even agree, but I do think that the why is central, that the purpose. What is it for? That's the purpose question. So if we can wrestle through that purpose, I think that we can chart a different path. And what I try and make a claim for, and we've already talked about this a bit, is that the big why of the church is shalom, is the hopes and dreams of God. It is the kingdom of God come near. And there's maybe a different language for it, but it is the story of God renewing and repairing everything. And how the neighborhood fits into that is all of us are not the creator. We are created. We are gifted with bodies which have limits. We live in real places in a real time. So if you'll even go with me for a moment that, oh yeah, okay, well, if we put the center of what does the church exist for? It's to 
join in the dreams of God, well, where do we do that? Well, we do it in our everyday lives at our capacity. So we sometimes, and again, this is actually going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, but if we're not God, and I don't think that anyone listening would claim they are, then we have to realize that we do have limits and those are actually a gift. So when we ask the questions of what are the dreams of God in our neighborhood, it's not just a big cosmic universal question, even though some of those are appropriate. Renewal and restoration, reconciliation, redemption of everything. I think that's a good universal answer. I think it's biblical. I think it's right. But that takes on a whole different posture when those questions get literally enfleshed in our actual neighborhoods. So it's one thing to say, does God care about healthy and whole marriages, for example? Well, sure. You could probably make a good case of that. It's a different thing to walk around your block and know that four doors down, there's a marriage that's on the rocks. And you're now wrestling with, God, what would you have me do, if anything? And maybe the answer is nothing. But do you see the difference there between, oh, yeah, it's a big universal principle that God cares about marriages. Great. It's a whole different thing when you're now praying, God, what would you have me, us do? Because we know this is real. And that's true for every household, every person, every relationship, and all issues. There are beautiful things happening in our neighborhoods, but there are hard things too. One of the best lines in your book along this topic is when you say we need a shared geography to move us from an abstract idea to a very real dare. And I just stopped when I read that. I was like, yes, that is so, so good. And what I'm hearing you say is you're connecting this broad idea of loving our neighbor. You're taking it from being this big abstract idea to real people and real stories. So I'm curious, do you ever get pushback from people? Because you're so passionate that the neighborhood, the parish, is the place that this is supposed to happen. I'm curious, why are you so passionate? Why the neighborhood? And I agree with you. But also, do you get pushback from people on that? I get pushback all the time. And I would argue there's a dozen really powerful macro stories that push against a more local way of life. Absolutely. In church circles, the big pushback, and it's completely understandable, and there's lots of good conversations around this, is basically, well, we're part of a large regional church. We're not a part of one neighborhood. So I guess this is not for us. And the conversation I think to be had there is, well, nevertheless, everyone's coming from somewhere. So if there is interest and desire in being the church in their everyday lives, then maybe your congregation or your church is more like a network of a whole bunch of parish churches, if you want to go in that direction. And there's opportunities to do that. And examples, actually, all over the country of churches that have effectively taken that route. And then across all sectors, there is a growing chorus that's saying we need to get back to a more local way of life. This is a big part of the healing of economic development, the environment, schools, even public safety, ecological concerns, social concerns. The current Surgeon General is spending a lot of time focusing in right now on the loneliness epidemic, which has very, very clear health concerns. In the UK, there is actually a cabinet minister that's been assigned as the minister of loneliness. It's very, very real. So I keep coming back to neighborhoods because I feel like the fundamental building block of society and culture. The great urbanist Jane Jacobs said that cities are essentially a federation of neighborhoods. And if she's right on that, and I think she is, I think that's true with places, with suburban and rural areas as well. 
The big reason why I'm so passionate about neighborhoods and parishes is because I feel like it is a dare to our faith. I love that language. Sorry, say it again. Thank you. It's a dare to our faith as opposed to some just technique that we crank on. And that is what I feel we need the most right now. We don't necessarily need one, two, three steps to fix it. There's no fixing it necessarily. We're called into an adventure where God is at work. And if a lot more of us would say yes to that adventure, I promise you that we would have unending stories for ourselves and our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids. I would argue that right now, there is no other organization, system, movement, but the local church, when you think about it this way, whose story is to actually be the fabric of care in every single neighborhood. It's one thing to say, wave our hands around how much would we love Jesus? And we should, absolutely. But we actually are part of a big, ancient, global network that actually says, Part of our mission is we're trying to knit together every single person that loves and cares about this place. We're not primarily about ourselves. We're primarily about you and anyone who has redemptive hopes for this place. And I honestly can't think of another entity on the planet with that mission. So it's a little bit crazy making sometimes that it feels there's still so much work to do, but that is actually who we are. It's who we've been. And I think it's who God's calling us to be. I think it's good to call it an adventure (laughs) because it is, and it's full of risks. There's high highs and there can be great disappointments. It can take a long time to see God work in a neighborhood. And you make the case that we need to do it with other people. This isn't a Lone Ranger endeavor. So I have two questions. One, what would it look like for a group of believers in a neighborhood to work together? Are you meeting regularly to plan and pray? Or is it not as organized as that? You just know that there's people out there doing the same thing. And What if someone is, I don't know any other believers in my neighborhood. How do I start? I don't want to burn out. How do I get going? How do I find other people to join with me? So I guess two-part question, you can take it however you want. We've had a lot of two-parters. It is. (laughs) You're being very patient, Tim. I like it. No, these are great questions. Well, just like last time, this is the second question of, I don't know anybody else. We're fits and starts, but that's a big part of why the Parish Collective exists, the nonprofit that I helped start, because we are convinced that there is a veritable megachurch in just about every neighborhood. But the only way that that's ever going to be connected and made real and made public is if hands can go up literally and digitally and say, I'm here, I care, who else is around? And we have a lot of work to do to make that easier, but that is the hope. And we're not the only ones that are trying to convene. There's organizations and platforms that are trying to connect other Christians, but very few that are trying to do so with the perspective of how can you all maybe be the church in the neighborhood at some level. And our recommendation would be to be experimental initially. What I mean by that is it's probably not going to be the best first step forward to meet three or four other Christians in your neighborhood and say, let's be lifelong friends. Let's start a common bank account, even though that's all there in Acts. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think you are absolutely onto it that initially this is cliche, but cliches are there for a reason. You can only grow at the speed of trust. So I think the big first invitation is to get to know one another, to absolutely be praying together, to hear each other's stories. I think hospitality, eating together, drinking together, going on walks together, being curious about each other's families and kids and pressures, et cetera, et cetera, is a phenomenal place to begin. 
But I do think it's really, really important that common refrain we've been talking about of what might God be up to needs to be a big part of that conversation. It needs to be at least a question. Otherwise, it's just sweet Christians who are getting to know each other, but they're not in some ways beginning to think about what they might be able to be and become and do together. And for some folks, they might worship in different places. And then there's other folks, and I'd say a growing number of congregations who are basically saying, no, we either really want to be a neighborhood church here in this place, or like I was saying before, we are a regional church and we've got people all over, but we are thinking of ourselves increasingly as a network of place-based communities. And when we gather together on Sunday, we're celebrating and lamenting our lives together in those places, which I would argue gives more purpose and form and shape to our Sunday gatherings than just trying to get people in the door, as important as that might be. I think it's an important thing that you bring up. I think sometimes we can get caught in the, well, there's nobody else from my church that I attend in my neighborhood, but the vision is to work with anybody. We don't have to all go to the same church in order to gather in our neighborhoods to then see God do something. In fact, there might be even a power there of working with other believers. And when you do something, we're not doing this barbecue to promote our church because we all come from a bunch of different churches. We're just trying to love our neighbors and love the neighborhood. And we talk about our faith and we talk about what's happening at our particular church, but we're doing it together. And there's a special work of the Holy Spirit and the power behind that that I've experienced in our neighborhood that I think is really cool that you point out and you call us to. Yeah, Chris, I think another thing that can happen if that story becomes more and more true is that it provokes a different question, I think a healthy one from our neighbors. What is going on here? I understand if you're trying to get me to come to your church, that makes sense. But it seems like this is just who you are. That's different. That's a different thing. And I could be a part of it ostensibly. To me, one of the major tasks for us in the next decade or two is to try and weave together the potential for more of a collective discipleship with our neighbors. So folks that are I personally, and maybe this will hit in the wrong way, but I don't see a huge difference between evangelism or discipleship. It just matters as to where people are at with their faith, how they're betting. But most of us came to faith, not just because of one person or one magical moment in the woods. Most of us came from a network of relationships who were beginning to chip away at us or God was working through lots and lots of different people. I think that's actually been pretty true through much of church history and through the Christian story. So if in our neighborhoods, there are a whole bunch of Christians who at least know each other and they have some common hopes together and their agenda is not so much to come to my church, even though that invitation should be there. It's more, tell me about your life and what are you hoping and longing for? And over time and with trust, what might the gospel have to say to that? That to me is interesting. One of the things I really appreciate about that is Tim Keller, I know, has talked in the past about how people need to try Christianity on for size, which maybe sounds crass, but I get that. People need to imagine themselves in that community, and they need to be able to imagine how it would look. So when you come together with people from different churches, every church has its own temperament, its own strengths, its own weaknesses. And if they can't imagine themselves in your particular church for whatever reason, then they might just write off Jesus, which is what we don't want them to do. So when we work together with people who, okay, this person's at a church plant, this person is gathering with a pretty big size crowd that might be a really good fit or might not. 
when they see that there's different options of worship and different ways to follow Jesus, then they can maybe see themselves as a part of that story too, I think. I don't want this to sound in any way sanctimonious or shaming, but there's pretty clear direction that Jesus talks about of how people will know that we are following Jesus by our love for one another. So if we don't know each other, seems like that's a good place to start. That's good. I like how you use the language of being curious, both with other believers and with our neighbors who might be unchurched or dechurching or whatever the current language is. But you talk about seeing people, rather than seeing our neighbors through a Genesis 3 lens, seeing them through a Genesis 1 lens, which I'd never heard that language before. Genesis 3 meaning referring to the fall where Adam and Eve fell out of relationship with God, but Genesis 3 referring to the creation and humans being made in God's image. So tell me about seeing your neighbors in the image of God. How does that Genesis 1 lens shape the way you see their gifts, their skills, the way you appreciate them as human beings? This is silly, but you know how a couple of years ago, Google had that Google Glass thing, which looked all freaky and theoretically could project words or whatever. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't remember that, but... I do. I'm more into tech than she is, so... (laughs) I live in a cave, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I say that to say, who knows if those things are going to ever get adopted. But I do wonder sometimes how drastically our lives would change if the literal first thing that we saw when our eyes hit any other human being is image of God, Imago Dei, beloved by God. Every single person. A lot of us believe that. We mentally ascribe to that. We wouldn't argue against it. But that's not our emotional reaction. It's certainly not mine all the time. So that goes back to that initial, before the fall, God did create all of us good. In fact, the Hebrew is not just meod, but tov meod, really, really good. And have we fallen? Absolutely. Are we broken? Yes. Is sin a part of the story and death? Absolutely. And that's why we need to cling to Jesus. However, we have to read the whole story from beginning to end. So if fundamentally our posture with our neighbors is that they are a problem, there's deficits, they're broken. I'm not saying that's not true, but deeper than that is they are made and created in the image of God and they've got gifts and talents and unique quirks that we can grow to love. One of my favorite writers is Wendell Berry, and he wrote this incredible essay one time called It All Turns on Affection. And I think he's right about everything with that simple phrase. It all turns on affection. No one's going to be healed. No one's going to change. No one's going to grow if they can't feel some level of affection from us. And if fundamentally our posture as individuals or as congregations or the capital C church, and I think tragically this has happened, capital C church, our reputation is not exactly loving without condition having affection for everyone, regardless of how they act. Some of the puritanical, ideological, pharisaical lenses have crept in. So primarily people feel judged. People primarily feel excluded. People primarily feel the last place that I'm going to go for help is with the church or with those Christians, because I can't fathom how they would ever have affection for me. And that does make sense if you start the story a couple chapters in, but that's not where the story begins. And if there is no hope for redemption, then Why did Jesus come? So to wrap up, you mentioned this phrase that stood out to me is retreating from the neighborhood. 
And that happens when we stay in our Christian bubbles and we live our busy lives and we don't really step out into our neighborhoods and engage and see what God's up to and join with others. What would you say in your mind is the biggest thing we miss out on when we retreat from our neighborhoods, we stay in those bubbles, and we don't take some of those steps out our front door? Well, this might sound flippant, but we miss out on actual reality. If we stay in our bubbles, whether they be Christian or political or whatever, we literally have such a limited understanding of what's really going on. So it comes back to this theme of curiosity. The more we're curious about our neighbors and their people, I feel like the closer we can get to reality. And that, I would argue, is where God always lives. God lives in reality, not in our fantasies. That's what God's interested in, is our actual lives, not our imagined lives, not the stuff we brag about on Instagram. God cares about our actual lives, our actual fears, our actual stress, our actual brokenness, our actual glory. So if we are just contained within our homogenous, you pick the bubble, we're missing out on so much of what God is doing. And again, we're the ones who lose out on that, actually. Our neighbors have so much to teach us to give. This is not a one-way project. I don't think it's even possible, truly, to fully be a disciple of Jesus without the influence of lots of people who are not following Jesus. There's a lot that we can be learning with and from them. And I just think it's a way, way, way more fun way to live. I love that. Tim, thank you so much, truly, for the work that you are doing in this space. You are creating resources like this website that I feel we've been missing out on the last few years, theparishcollective.org. There's neighboring playlists on there, the songs of place. There's an essential reading list that I was showing Chris yesterday. I'm like, we need to just work our way down this list. And you are calling believers, you are calling us into this movement led by God, led by His Spirit, and I want to be a part of it. And I truly thank you for the work you're doing in this space and for joining us today with your wisdom and all the experiences that you've had in all these different neighborhoods. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Chris. It's such a gift to be with you. It's one more confirmation that God's up to something really beautiful. It might feel small, but I think it's really, really big. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about. Or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us. Tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram, and you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend. Music